Welcome to For the Love of Brantford, a podcast about the evolving story of our community. This podcast is for everyone who holds a place in their heart for our beautiful city. I'm Nathan Etherington, the Program and Community Coordinator for the Brant Historical Society. I'll be sharing some information from the Brant Historical Society archives and other sources to share some history that you may not have learned in school. And I'm Andy Samwell, president of the Eagle Place Community Association, and I'm passionate about community. And for me, you'll hear about what's happening in our community now. And I'm Zila Ozels from the Brantford Public Library. I'll be speaking with experts to get an idea of where our community is going. If you have any questions or comments that you would like to share with us, fill in our feedback form on the podcast website at brantfordlibrary.ca slash FLB. We hope you join us each episode as we learn from each other and explore Brantford's past, present, and future. Hello, and welcome to Season 2, Episode 5 of For the Love of Brantford, where we explore the evolving story of our community. In this episode, we explore some of the ways people have and are cultivating plants in the Brantford area. I speak with Brian Wood, curator at the Bell Homestead, about the greenhouse the Bell family built. Then Cheryl from Equal Grounds Community Gardens shares their plans for a new greenhouse at the Earl Hegg Community Garden. And I speak with Susie and Gwen from the local Butterfly Way Ranger Project about growing native pollinator plants. As an amateur gardener, I really enjoyed preparing for this episode. I picked up some new information to incorporate into next year's garden plan. Susie and Gwen really were a wealth of information. I think for some people, thinking about gardening, whether it's for beauty or for food, can be a little overwhelming. There's a lot to think about, and sometimes it's very easy to kill a plant. For sure. There are a lot of different factors to consider. It's easier when you you have passionate people you can go to, like Equal Grounds Community Gardens or the Butterfly Way Rangers who are willing to share their knowledge. For books, uh, Nathan, when I was listening to your interview, I found it fascinating that Brian was able to refer to older resources to figure out how the Bell Homestead Greenhouse was built. Yeah, so much of our understanding of how things were done in the past really does rely on old documents. And it's funny because you'll notice odd patterns about things repeating themselves from designs in the past into today's designs. Assuming you have time to read them, I'm happy that I've been able to connect with Equal Grounds Community Gardens when I have questions. Most of the time I go by trial and error, take note, and kind of hope that next year I do better. How's that working out for you, Zila? Uh, it's hit and miss. <laughs> anyway, why don't we move on to Nathan's interview with Brian? So for this week's episode, I thought I'd do something a little bit different and rather than research my own story about the history of greenhouses, I thought I would talk to Brian Wood at the Bell Homestead. So Brian, for our listening audience, can you give a brief introduction to yourself? Uh, so I am curator here at the Bell Homestead. Uh, I manage the, the overall operation of the site. Great. So how did the Bell family come to own the homestead and where was the building located and what amenities came with it? 
when they purchased the property. So the Bells purchased the property in 1870 after they emigrated from Scotland and England. Uh, they were the second owners of the, of the property. The house was built in 1858 by a Montreal contractor named Robert Morton. Uh, he built the home for he and his wife as a retirement residence and established a small working farm on the property. So the, the acreage was 10 and a half uh, acres total. Uh, when the Bells purchased the property, there were two and a half acres of fruit orchards uh, to the rear of the house. Uh, there was a carriage house, several other barns and sheds, uh, pasture, pigsty, uh, and uh, a very uh, thick grove of oak trees, which essentially provided the fuel for heating the house. When was the greenhouse then added to the property and why was it added? Uh, well, we believe it was probably around 1879 or 1880, so towards the end of the Bell's residency here. Bell's father, Melville, purchased a book called Practical Floriculture. Coming from Scotland and England, where conservatories were, were quite a regular addition to even urban houses, uh, Melville decided that they needed a greenhouse. And it, it wasn't so much so that they could uh, grow plants for the farm, so to speak. It was more for ornamental plants and that type of thing. Do we know what kinds of things they grew in the greenhouse? And it, you kind of answered a little bit about that. Well, again, most of it would have been probably ornamental. So the one photo that we have taken in the house during the Bell's time, in fact, is, is a photo of that greenhouse or that conservatory with Melville and Eliza Bell sitting in it. It was, it was very well uh, packed with plants at that point in time. Melville had vines running across the rafters. And, but I, I suspect that on his travels, he's probably picked up plants or uh, different people have sent him plants from areas Again, with the, with the challenge of seeing if he could keep it alive during the winter months here, which of course would have been much colder than what we experience today. To look at the photograph, you, you see uh, all sorts of different, even tropical plants that uh, you don't think of as being something that would survive uh, in, a, in a 19th century home here in Canada. The greenhouse was later removed. So do we know when it was removed and then when it was added back on? From photographs that we've seen uh, with owners after the Bell family, uh, it appears the greenhouse was probably removed by uh, the last of the private owners. So somewhere between 1902 and 1909, likely because the structure had, it, it had reached the end of its lifetime. It was a wood structure. The family then took it off and it, it remained off until 1973. So the, what we have here now was reconstructed as part of the, the first sort of restoration of the house uh, that was undertaken by Bell Canada. So the, the conservatory we have now is certainly similar in shape, but it is not totally similar in, in the building materials that were used. So for example, it does have a concrete base now that it wouldn't have had in the Bell's time. Uh, what kind of uses do you have for the greenhouse today? Do you run any kind of programs out of there or anything? So it is primarily interpretive. The, the idea of reconstructing it was to uh, really recreate the original uh, layout of the homestead as, as much as possible. So we try to keep plants growing in there uh, year round. Uh, admittedly, my green thumb is not nearly as good as Melville Bell's would have been. And we have a few challenges as, as well in that when it was reconstructed, there were uh, a couple of key elements uh, that weren't put back. So for example, a source of heat for the winter, uh, Melville had a boiler in the root cellar of the house, which would bring steam up through a, a cast iron grate in the floor of the conservatory originally. 
We do not have that. And we don't have a vent at the top of the conservatory to release heat in the summer. So it, there are months where it's just way too hot out there for, for plants to go. But in the spring, we will, uh, we'll start bringing plants back in again. Occasionally, we'll start some plants from seeds uh, that are used through our day camp programs or more so through our education programs with the schools. Uh, especially when we're doing the Habitat Homestead program that we do here uh, at the end of the school year. We have had some of the gardening groups here in town as well use it, bring seeds that they could start out here to help fill the, the space as well. Where else have you gone in the past to look for further information to help add to the story at the Bell Homestead? Well, the Bell family letters are, the, are our primary resource. So this was a family that uh, really kept everything. Even Belle's mother, we have a collection of over 300 letters that she wrote to her son during the 11 years that, that she was living here. Thankfully, he kept most of those letters. So there's some wonderful descriptions in the letters that tell us how the house functioned and also uh, when they were making changes or additions to the house. The other uh, piece that we use is, is most definitely this book that Melville Bell uh, bought around 1879 called Practical Floriculture. And it, it goes through anything that an amateur horticulturalist would want to see in terms of establishing uh, a conservatory. And there's a chapter in it uh, that details how to build a conservatory, include what, including one that uh, is uh, greenhouses attached to the dwelling and the and the figure that's in the book is almost identical to the conservatory that's here. So Melville was definitely relying on that as a source of information. And we've been able to do the same. What ways uh, can people learn more about the Bell Homestead? So the site is open for one hour tours, Tuesday to Saturday. Uh, we conduct three tours in the morning, three in the afternoon uh, on the hour. So between nine and 11 and one and three. Uh, they are full tours, so it's, it's the homestead as well as the Henderson home, which was the first telephone office. And then at other times, uh, we run special events in which the houses are open. Uh, we have one coming up the end of the, the month. It's, it's a Halloween fun fair, but the main house will be open for people to have a look. And, and people can certainly call ahead and book an appointment with us to, to take a tour. In fact, we recommend that just to make sure uh, people get the space that they want, the, the time and the date. Thanks for uh, chatting with us today, Brian, about the Bell Homestead. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Hi, Cheryl. Thanks for joining me today. Could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Thank, thanks for having me, Mandy. Um, well, as you know, I've been a sitting city councillor for for eight years and just uh, in the midst of retiring. Um, but but uh, what we're talking about today is is Equal Ground Community Gardens, and that is something that I was a co-founder of back in 2009. And uh, so we've been running strong and growing since then. Um, up until very recently, I was president and chair. We now have an, an interim one as, as we get ready to make Make some some transition and that's uh, Caitlin Schneider we've got a really active board and um, you know really a, a project that we're quite proud of in, in the city can you tell us a little bit more about equal grounds and what you guys do so community we run a bit differently than what most people are familiar with with community gardens so when when people hear about a community garden they typically think about somebody renting a plot for whatever 10 or 15 or 20 or 30 dollars um, and that's theirs to plant and and harvest from and take care of 
our community gardens belong, or I was going to say they belong to no one, but actually they belong to everyone. And um, the ones that are in public spaces and open to the public, volunteers are gathered uh, from the community and it is all planted together. Uh, certainly they have access to the harvest and they go in and they water and they weed and they, you know, stake and they trellis and all of the things that need to happen in a garden. But all of the community is welcome to enter that garden and help themselves to the harvest. And that's been a really hard uh, difference to get people to understand because we have a couple of reverse biases that we're trying to do. So, so we'll have volunteers or, or even someone in the community that comes in and says, oh, well, I don't need that. I can buy my stuff. At, so I'm going to leave it for someone who needs it. Everybody needs food. Everybody needs fresh food. Uh, you know, there's lots of people who have all the money in the world that have never tasted a tomato off of a vine. So we're, we deal a little more with the reverse. Oh, what's the word I'm looking for? Anyways, it, it, it's, it's more difficult. And we're trying to say there should be no divide with food. This is where we should all come together at the table and whether, you know, you want to segregate people into haves and have nots. This doesn't matter. This is fresh, healthy food. Let's sit together. Let's meet our neighbors. Let's build community. Let's build a village and let's get back to what really matters. Um, and could you share a little bit too about how you've had people with um, gardens on their own property and that's part of the program as well? Yeah, so there's there's three part three main pro programs to what we do. The first is the is the community gardens, which actually also breaks out into a few different segments. There's a pay it forward garden and there's your community gardens and then there's kind of in-house community gardens, you know, for an organization. What you're referring to is what we call our host garden program. And the host garden program was always a goal uh, for equal ground. We thought that if people could get, number one, could get more familiar with seeing food gardens around, they would become more comfortable because they're nowhere, no, you know, unless they're in a private backyard and fenced in, uh, which is why we started looking at things like the police station or the fire hall. Let's, let's have food gardens everywhere where people see them and they're not a novelty anymore. And, and also, you know, I've always wanted to have a garden, but I don't know anything about it. So come work with us and, and make your mistakes there and, and learn that the mistakes don't even matter so that you can be more comfortable growing at home. So that really was all an end goal was to just get people more uh, self-sustained on growing their own food. Um, so I've been hearing about... Um that you have a greenhouse project coming up. And I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about that exciting news. Yeah, we're very excited about this. This has been a long-term goal. It's it's ambitious. Um, it's a big project. And we, like most nonprofits, don't, you know, we kind of run on a shoestring. Um, so we were very fortunate to be granted, uh, to awarded to be awarded a grant through Ontario Trillium Foundation, which has allowed us um, to put up a greenhouse and to hire a full-time person for a year, which is so critical for us because we're all volunteers and we're all doing it off the side of our desks. And, and so we really need that dedicated help. Um, so this greenhouse will go in at Earl Hague, and um, we're really excited about that for, for lots of reasons. Um, it's a great location. There's lots of room there. There's, there's ability for us to run workshops and programming and all of those things there. We're just really hoping that the community helps us take care of that greenhouse so that we can continue to 
will do lots of things, the things I just mentioned, workshop, but also provide more food free for the community, right? Um, so we're very excited about that. We're working through all the processes right now because it's, it's, um, it's a building on city property. The city of Brantford is our partner and we're not developers and we're not builders. So this has been a huge learning curve in terms of uh, trying to get there, but people will see a greenhouse there in the near future. And um, we're really hope we're going to need, we're going to need more volunteers next year. We're going to need, we need corporate sponsorship. We need cor corporate partners that may have things uh, that they can donate in kind, whether that be gravel, you know, maybe they've got the machines and the expertise and they say, hey, we'll do this, whatever, this grading for you in kind. And we're happy to um, certainly advertise those community minded partners. Is there anything else that you wanted to add about what you think that this will mean to the community having this greenhouse? It, it depends on the lens you're looking through. I think it's going to mean a lot of things for us. The food, of course, has always been very important. The community development is just as important. And I think we're finding the same thing that uh, a lot of organizations are finding. So pre-COVID, we had built a really good network of volunteers. People were starting to learn about who we were and what we were. And COVID obviously shut those things down. And, and we're, we're finding it very difficult to start rebuilding again. So people who may have been engaged before their life in some way, shape or form, their life has changed since COVID. Maybe they've got a different job, maybe, you know, whatever it is, um, their life had to take a different direction. And so we've just been meeting on this saying, do we just step back and start from scratch? Like we've never done this before where you go out and you flyer everybody and you meet with every group and you, and uh, you, you just, try and get that engagement people people are tired also after covid and they don't feel like they have this extra time we're hoping that we can send the message out that we're not just asking you to work as a volunteer we're really wanting to build that community work together so that you get that you know when you know your neighbor you go and help shuffle your neighbor's driveway or they come and help you there's there's all these kind of fingers that go out the food security is huge we know that there's been a greater need since covid it's about a hand up right this is, let's teach you how to grow this and and if you don't have the space then come grow with us we can work together and do it there's our, our community needs to heal and we're not the only one there's a lot of communities and we can all gather around food could you tell us how, if someone wanted to get involved with Equal Grounds, how they would go about doing that? Sure. There's, we've got some transition right now. So the best way is through an email while we work out the transition, which is uh, equalgroundcommunitygardens at gmail.com. Hi, can you please introduce yourselves? I'm Ranger Susie from Brantford. And I'm Ranger Gwen from Brantford. Can you tell us a bit about the Butterfly Way project and how did you each get involved? Uh, the Butterfly Way project, it's uh, through the David Suzuki Foundation. And it's kind of a, a grassroots organization that, that came about through recognizing that our pollinators are in trouble. The main one that people are familiar with is, is the monarch and how the monarch population has uh, significantly declined and suffered over the last number of years. It's 
um, just people all across Canada, and, but it's everybody trying to do a little bit to introduce some native species or some host species that are, are butterflies. Yeah, just, just planting, making a difference one plant at a time. And uh, how I came to it, I was I was involved with uh, the city of Brantford had a had a program there for a while called the Waterwise Initiative, where they were encouraging people to be more mindful of their water usage, and of uh, like stormwater runoff. The typical thing is to have uh, your property be grass, and grass takes a lot of water when when we're in periods of drought. And so it was sort of encouraging a bit of a changeover, you know, could you remove some of the grass? Could you plant items that are more drought tolerant? And when I came across the, um, the butterfly way, I, I could recognize that although the goals were different, the means to it were the same. It's sort of like if you're planting the native species, they are drought tolerant naturally. They're just adapted to, to where we are, to the climate. And those are the the plants that our, our pollinators need to to survive and it's also helps with the stormwater runoff because you know grass is just very shallow rooted and when you get a good rainfall the the root systems aren't absorbing that much and you have a fair amount of of water runoff as opposed to if you're having native plants they tend to have deeper root systems and more of a storage system. It's they take in the rainwater when it comes and they hold on to it for longer because they've got a more significant root structure. I got into the Butterfly Way program because I wanted to make a difference. And, and it is making a difference in maybe not in people, but it is making a difference with the pollinators. So I, I don't even know where I saw the ad, probably on Facebook. And I joined, um, this is my second year, so I joined last year. And um, I basically what I do is I educate people uh, about the importance of planting native to support the, the pollinators that belong here. What I mean, and I'll give you an ex a good example, is that the honeybees that give us all that lovely honey really don't belong here. I mean, and here I mean Canada. Uh, they're actually European honeybees that were brought over to uh, pollinate crops for farmers. So what's happening is the uh, native bees are now competing with the European honeybees and they're losing. So um, the European honeybees will pollinate everything. Like they, they don't, you know, they don't care. They just want the pollen and the, and the nectar. And the native bees um, will, will pollinate what they're supposed to, but they, what their instincts say they should pollinate. It makes a huge difference if, if we get rid of the plants that don't belong for us, it would be the Carolina zone. If we don't plant the plants that belong in the Carolina zone, we're going to lose all the pollinators from the Carolina zone. So I want to add on to what, what Gwen, Gwen was saying, talking about the native bees. Ontario is home to approximately 400 different species of native bees, which account for 70% of pollination activity. You know, that, that's the lion's share, right? Uh, if, if we're not doing, 
doing stuff to to support those native ones, then we're going to be in, in, in a hard spot when it comes to pollinating our, our crops that we need to eat ourselves. What are the long-term impacts of introducing more pollinator plants into an area? And I guess on the flip side, what's the impact if we lose all our pollinators and pollinator plants? Oh, that's that's an easy one. <laughs> if we lose our pollinators, we don't eat. That's the end of it. If, if we don't have the pollinators, um, we don't eat because they're the ones that keep producing our food. So um, I did a presentation to the school one year, one day uh, last year to a school. And I said to the, the children, I said, we talked about the bees pollinating the, the flowers and we used apple trees. And I said, so what happens if we don't have bees to pollinate the apple trees? I, and, and they're like, you know, questioning me. And I said, well, we won't have any apples. So what are we gonna eat if we don't have apples? And they said, well, we'll eat vegetables. I said, but you need, there's only one type of bee that pollinates tomatoes. So if we don't, that bee isn't here anymore, we don't get tomatoes and we don't get celery and cucumbers and because you need all the flowers pollinated. Then they said, well, we'll eat meat, <laughs> we'll eat meat. And I said, um, what do the cows eat? Well, they eat grass and plants and hay and all that kind of stuff. And I said, how do we get all those plants? You know, those plants have to grow from, from seeds. How do we get the seeds? Then it clicked to them that we need the pollinators to plant, to, to pollinate the plants, to get the seeds, to get the plants that we need to eat. And they were, they were like, just gobsmacked that, <laughs> that they realized that, oh my God, we need the bees. So it is very important, very, very important that we preserve the ecosystem and, um, and, and look after these, these pollinators because without them we're not going people are not going to exist it is proven fact that um, we need the bees and the pollinators to eat and if people keep killing them off and not looking after the the ecosystem we're done and i don't mean done in the next 10 years you know but maybe in the next 100 years 200 years whatever but eventually the pollinators are going to die and we're not going to have food to eat because there isn't there isn't going to be any and i know that sounds really drastic and bad but that's the truth and so this is why we do these butterfly ways is so that pollinators can go from um, one butterfly way to the next, to the next, to the next. The more flowers we have, the more native plants and flowers we have, the more pollinators we have. And, and people need to stop using pesticides. No pesticides, no Roundup. Um, you know, stop killing the bees. They're not going to hurt you. It's just, just 
leave them alone. Most of the and native bees don't even sting you. you know, yeah, I'm, glad, I'm eat... glad you mentioned that because that, that's true that the, the native species tend to be, you know, the more, the more docile ones. Yeah, what we, what we don't like <laughs> is yellow jackets and like white-faced wasps. And the reason we don't like them is because they bite and they don't belong here. They are not native to Ontario or Canada, or like they're not supposed to be here. They, they do nothing, nothing for the native pop population. So the, the carpenter bees apparently are a little bit on the territorial side. And this summer I did, I did have a lot of them. That was sort of mostly what I, what I had in the backyard with these carpenter bees. And they're, they're kind of a little bit funny, um, amusing, funny. And uh, so, but for the fact that they are a bit territorial, they keep away the, um, the ones that you don't want, right? The, the hornets and the, you know, you're having a soda pop out there and you got a, whatever it is, a yellow jacket or whatever. I didn't see them. They were not around. And I'm like, <laughs> it's those carpenter bees. <laughs> They're keeping away all those nasties. So it's like, it's, it's just... Uh, neat seeing how everything's interrelated and, and how it all works together. As a reminder for anyone who's listening, uh, you can be found at Brantford Butterfly Way Project on Facebook. And so people can join the group there or send messages yep. there. They do need to make sure that they answer the questions so that we can approve them. You know what? We're just out there doing the gardening, looking after the, the pollinators doing what we can and if everybody did a little bit got rid of some invasive species put in a little bit of a garden doesn't have to be big a little bit helps every little bit helps and even even someone that's in an apartment and has has a balcony if you if you have something a plant that even just provides nectar right, that, that is going to be a, you know, a feeding station along, along the way is better than nothing at all. I just have to point out that I really learned a lot from talking to Susie and Gwen about their Butterfly Way Rangers project. I mean, I was only able to edit a bit of it into our final episode. So people should really listen to the full bonus episode of the full interview to get all the information they were sharing about like what kind of plants they should, people should be looking at to plant in this area uh, and why it's so important. Like they provided so many good examples. I really wish I could have included everything, but you know, we have a time limit. I know I find it really interesting how they were talking about most of the plants that we actually plant here are, not native plants so that's what you kind of mostly get at your garden center and stuff like that so i thought that was really interesting so i think i'm gonna pay more attention to that when i'm picking out what i'm gonna plant what nathan was mentioning about how you know we repeat things from the past so we're going back to <laughs> native plants it's funny because uh when i i think about native plants too and there's this one vivid example that i remember from earth science class and our our professor was telling us about grass how all of our lawns have to have this green immaculate grass and that grass is native to kentucky which is not southern ontario and if you notice all the grass on the side of the highway 
in the summer, it all goes yellow. And that's what the grass is naturally supposed to do. So we don't actually have natural grass in this area as well. And uh, especially in our like cities, but uh, it's very important as well for like those habitator, uh, those natural uh, organisms that live in this area, this is their habitat and they need those native plants, which is why a lot of our conservation areas are very important. They sit there and they do nothing, but that's in fact their like actual job. And it's such a difference from even thinking about why the Bell greenhouse was built to, you know, bring in those beautiful non-native plants that don't naturally survive in Canada. I found it interesting that they had to heat the greenhouse in the winter if they wanted anything to survive. Yeah. yeah. Back in the past, these houses are are very old and drafty and they let lots of air and heat escape into them. And then um, it was funny. I was, I've been going through the photo collection at the museum as well and trying to improve the, the photos and when I started like looking through all, all 10,000 plus of these photos that we have, all of a sudden, everywhere I looked, it was like, there's a greenhouse. There were, one was Passmore's, which is a, like a fl- floral store right now, but it was just like a general greenhouse back then. And then there was like a, you know, another composite with all these Brantford yuppie business owners and their houses. And off the side of one of them is a greenhouse. Kind of funny how these things go out of fashion sometimes, but then they do come back into fashion for very appropriate purposes, like what's ha- going to happen down at Earl Hag. Yeah, I was just thinking about that too, and and the opportunity for learning that there's going to be with the person that they've that they've hired that's going to be um, teaching and doing programming out of there, and the fact that there's going to be a greenhouse in general that they can have more things that maybe can go more year round is just going to be fantastic. They already bring so much to the community with the um, community gardens, but that greenhouse is going to be next level for sure. I really like how Cheryl talked about really bringing the community together to do that. There, there was something that happened in last week's episode as well. And I can't remember what, who it was who said it right now, but Cheryl said it as well this week. And it was like, come make your mistakes with us. And it was like, uh, some of these things, right? One, that's part of a learning process is like failing, which is really funny to say and you kind of have to get comfortable with it. But um, she's encouraging people to come into the community gardens and use them to learn from them so that they can succeed, you know, at, at home. And it's kind of being that uh, that community garden and also like breaking down those, stereoty- those stereotypes of, oh, that's that's not my garden. I can't take anything from there. I really, uh, I really loved that approach that they're taking. Yeah. They really want people to know that it's for everyone, right? The, the food that grows there is for everyone and everybody can help out and everybody can share. I have the gift that keeps on giving in my garden every year. My friend back in university gave me these cherry tomatoes. He called them millions because they literally reproduce and there's millions of them. Uh, I planted them one year in my garden. We harvested them and that was it. And then all of a sudden, five years later, they started coming up. And then they started coming up everywhere in the garden. Now they've taken an over. And, and I continually encourage my neighbors. I was like, I have all these tomato plants. Do you need a tomato plant? And then I let them know, oh, the, they're on the vines. There's tons of tomatoes out there. Go and and grab half a dozen and 
one of my neighbors emailed me this year and they actually took me up on the offer and they went over and grabbed uh, a couple dozen of them. So I'm glad they got used by the community. And your garden must be a great little place for pollinators to come through. Yeah, I, I hope I am making a good environment for them. My parents used to use pesticides on their grass to kill the weeds and keep the weeds out. And when they left, I said, no, my, my garden, or my, my yard in the one spot is full of weeds. It's just weeds. But I'd, I'd rather it be natural than uh, full of some hokey fake thing. Or poison. Or poison, yeah. And all the bumblebees were dying because of it, those pollinators, right? Because of the pesticides they were using. So I didn't want any more of it. I did good things for my pollinator friends. Because without them, we won't be able to eat. Yeah, it was interesting to hear how Gwen kind of broke it down for that group of students, how it's all so connected in terms of like, well, if you don't have pollinators, you don't have apples. And no, you can't just switch to meat because they the, the meat relies on eating things that are pollinated. I really like that they do the pollinator people. They have a good like educational component to what they do as well. I know that they participated in the, in the Jane's Walk this past year. And that was like, I thought that that was an amazing uh, way to kind of educate people about, you know, there are certain plants. These are actually really, really good plants. You might call them a a weed, but they're native and natural and they support lots of uh, life and diversity. I have all kinds of plants here in my house. And just so you know, Zila, I killed a bunch of them too. So it's not just you, it's me, I struggle. At the same time, I learn and I get better. So there's hope for you yet, Zila. That's it for episode five of our second season of For the Love of Brantford. If you have any comments, questions, or suggestions, go to our website at brantfordlibrary.ca slash FLB to fill out our feedback form. Any and all suggestions are welcome. Thank you to Brian Wood for speaking to me about the Bell Homestead and its greenhouse. Thank you to Cheryl Antosky for sharing the exciting plans for the Earl Hag greenhouse. And thank you to Susie and Gwen for speaking with me about the local Butterfly Way Rangers. Thank you for listening to this episode of For the Love of Brantford. You can find all the episodes at brantfordlibrary.ca slash FLB, including the show notes where we list references, share images, and provide resources to continue your exploration of Brantford. We are your hosts, Mandy Samuel, Nathan Etherington, and Zila Ozels. This is a podcast in partnership with the Eagle Place Community Association, the Brant Historical Society, and the Brantford Public Library.